have your Bibles with you today, I'd ask you to turn to the book of Philippians in the third chapter. We'll be in Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to begin the reading in verse 4. And if you don't have your Bible today, the text will be up on the screen. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 4. And as you might know, we have been going through the book of Philippians these last few weeks. And last time we looked at uh, the first bit of chapter 3, and uh, we had to cut off right at verse 3. And I hate to do it because really Paul is... We kind of cut him off mid-sentence, but uh, Paul is, we had to cut it off somewhere because Paul is, is giving us a rather extended section here, and all talks about uh, mostly the same stuff, starting in verse 2 and going all the way down to verse 16, and there's so much stuff to look at, we had to break it up into chunks, otherwise we'd be here for a couple of hours, and, and I'm not sure, that, uh, not sure that that would go over so well. So naturally, the theme of our text today is going to be very similar to what we looked at last time, and last week, when we looked at this, uh, you might remember that we saw that, um, that, that Paul was warning the Philippians to be on guard against anybody that would add to the cross of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's the cross plus nothing. It's the cross plus nothing. And the way of salvation is not Jesus plus something else. It's not Jesus plus good works. It's not Jesus plus obedience to the law. It's not Jesus plus uh, anything. It's through Christ alone that one is made right with God. Now, today, Paul's going to expand on this theme, and he gives us a resume of sorts. Now, it's not going to look like a resume that you would probably turn into an employer, but he gives us seven things in which he, had, in which he used to trust, he had been trusting, to make him right with God, and then he concludes with his utter uselessness uh, to, to do that very thing. So as we look at Paul's list of positives, his assets, in which he had been trusting, we need to turn the question in on ourselves. And we need to ask ourselves, in what are we trusting for salvation? In other words, where is your trust? So if you have Philippians chapter 3 found, I'd ask you to stand uh, as we read, uh, read our text today, beginning in verse 4. Paul says at the end of verse 3 that uh, we put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else have, has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Thank you. you may be seated. Now Paul has just spoken very, very strongly in the, the first part of our uh, the first part of chapter three against a group of people called the Judaizers. Now remember the Judaizers were people who tried to add to the gospel, and they said that in order to be saved, yes, a person must trust in Christ; they must uh, put their faith in Him. But they also needed to do certain aspects of the law. And the thing that the Judaizers focused on was the right of circumcision. So these people tried to add good works as a means of salvation. So Paul invites them to a credential showdown, if you will. He says, all right, if you want to play that game, I'll show you what, what I've been trusting in, what I used to trust in, and we'll just see how that works out for us. And so the first set of things that, that he had been putting confidence in is what I'm going to call his race. His race. Now, now when I talk about race here, I'm not talking about uh, black and white and things like that like we usually think of it today, but I'm talking about in terms of his, of his nationality, of his heritage, and, and, and point of fact, him being a Jew. And look first at what he says in verse 4. He says he was circumcised, or verse 5, circumcised the eighth day. The Greek is literally 
being in circumcision, an eighth-day person. Now, remember, who is it that he's arguing against? He's arguing against the Judaizers who focused on circumcision. So the first thing he, that he mentions is circumcision. Now, why does Paul talk about circumcision? And why does he say that he's, he was circumcised on the eighth day? Well, he does so because the law of, of, of God, the law of Moses, prescribed that uh, Jewish males be circumcised on the eighth day after birth. So when Paul mentions this, that this was done to him, he's saying more than mom and dad did what they were supposed to do. He's not, he's not just saying that. He, he is including that. But what he's saying is, I've always been Jewish. See, when the, when the heathen, when the Gentiles would convert to Judaism, those are called proselytes when they would, when they would convert. And these proselytes, whenever they would convert to Judaism, they would undergo, if they were a male, they would undergo circumcision. It didn't matter what age they were. So if they were a kid, it happened when they were a kid. If they were a 100-year-old man, it happened when they were 100 years old. And so this, this was something that happened uh, when somebody converted to Judaism. And Paul says, you know what? I experienced this from day eight, just like Moses said, just like God commanded him through Moses. And so if anybody can gain uh, some kind of advantage from this, it's me. Next he says in verse 5 that he was of the nation of Israel. In other words, he could trace his lineage back directly to Jacob, who God changed his name to Israel. But more than that, he could go all the way back to Abraham, the one that all the Jews were descended from. And, and Abraham was the one that they put all this, all this uh, stock in. And he says, there wasn't any mixture of Jew and Gentile. I can go all the way back to the source. I, I have a direct line back to Jacob, back to Abraham. And if anything can be gained from having a direct descent from the patriarch of the nation, I've experienced it. Now then he mentions, if you'll look at, at verse 5 again, he says he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Now let's, let's just slow down just a minute. Jacob, who he said he was descended from, he was married to two women, and they were sisters. You think you have family drama? Just imagine what that would be like. And so he was married to two sisters, but he really only loved one of them. And there's a whole backstory to that, too, how he ended up with the other one. He got tricked anyway. So he loved one of them. He loved Rachel. He had 12 boys, if you can imagine, 12 sons by multiple women, and each of those sons and their families became a tribe. Now, because of what the tribes did throughout their history and because of uh, who, their, who their person was in, as, as far as the son of Jacob, the son of Israel, uh, in, the Jewish, in the Jewish faith, in the Jewish uh, system, the Jewish people attached certain honors to different tribes. And one of the most revered tribes was the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Benjamin was, was thought of highly for several reasons. Now, remember I said he was married to two women. Rachel was the one that he loved. Benjamin and Judah were the two boys that were, that were born to Rachel. So Benjamin already has kind of a special place. He was, he was a favored son. Uh, of the 12 sons, Benjamin was the only one that was born in the Promised Land. Later in their history, Israel's first king, King Saul, he was, he was kind of a rotten king, but guess where he came from? Benjamin. Um, the, I mean, we, we have all this, all this stuff when the kingdom split after Solomon's death. There were, there were, uh, uh, the nation was split into two. There was the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. The southern kingdom stuck with the Davidic king, the, the line that God had chosen. Guess what two tribes stuck with the Davidic king? Judah and Benjamin. 
Jerusalem and the temple were located in the land that belonged to Benjamin. So, so we have all these advantages, all these, all these uh, check marks, I guess you'd say, in the, in the asset column in the tribe of Benjamin. And he said, guess what? That's where I'm from. I belong to that tribe. And finally, he says in verse 5, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, remember the Jews, the Israelites, the Hebrews, those are all, all three names of the same group. He says, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. That's an ancient Near Eastern way of using a superlative. So instead of saying, if anybody was a Hebrew, I'm him, he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. And in other words, he was born to Hebrew parents. His ancestors were all Hebrews. They were all Jewish. They, there were no Gentiles. And even though he was born in the Gentile land, his family learned and knew the ancient Hebrew dialect. So if anybody can mark down heritage, race, parentage, any of that, guess what? It was Paul. He had all those advantages, all those assets in his name. And I say, okay, pastor, that's, that's nice. Let's move on. But before we do, I want you to ask yourself this question. Are you doing any of those things that Paul did? See, some of us are proud of and we count on our heritage. Has anybody ever dealt with genealogy in, in your family? A few of us have. Now, Scarlett and I took a class in it, and we... We started messing around in a little bit. And it's addicting, but boy, it's time-consuming. And one of the things I've learned about my family as I began to look back in, in my family history is there are some relatives that I had, some of my ancestors, that I'm more proud of than others. And some of you may have those in your family, too. There, there, are, some, there are some nuts in your family tree, so to speak. But do you realize that there are people in churches all across the world, and there may be people in, in this church right now who are accounting on their race, their heritage, their background to get them in good with God. You ever think about that? See, a lot of people go to church week in and week out, but they're not really saved. They think, well, I don't need to be saved because guess what? Mom and dad were Christians. They say, well, I, when I was a kid, I had a drug problem. My mom and dad drove me to church all the time. I mean, Sunday school, Wednesday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night, I was there all the time. They think they don't need to go to God because, because mom and dad were Christians. I read a line in a Sunday school book a number of years ago that stuck with me. It says, God has no grandchildren. Think about that. God has no grandchildren. Listen, you're not going to get to heaven through a second-hand faith. It doesn't matter if mama and daddy were Christians. If you're not a Christian, you're not going to heaven. And still others bring up the fact that their grandpa was a preacher. It seems like everybody had a grandpa or some other relative that was a preacher. I've talked to so many people. They're living in unrepentant, open sin. I mean, they, they, they don't mind if anybody knows. Then they find out I'm a preacher, and then they get this, they start acting real weird. And then they almost always tell me, Grandpa was a preacher. Like, that's going to cover it. It's amazing how many preachers there used to be that were grandpas. And, and, and sometimes people think, well, I come from a long line of believers, so that makes me okay with God. They're counting on grandpa's faith. They're counting on their parents' faith. So others like Paul may be proud of their nationality or, or their location. Some may think that because they're an American, they're automatically in good with God. Because people today don't think that God can or will judge a nation or anybody else. And they think, well, God bless America. I'm an American, so God bless me. But listen, we, 
we may be an exceptional, exceptional nation, but God doesn't judge you differently because of where you're born. Others trust in their nationality or their or ethnicity as a means of grace. They think there's something special and meaningful about uh, what they look like on the outside. But God doesn't judge differently based on the amount of melanin in our skin. A person's color does not make them any closer or any farther away from God. And if you're trusting in any of those things, you're hitching your cart, your cart to the wrong horse. If you're trusting in any of those things, you're trusting in something that's false. You're trusting in something that will not justify you before God. The next thing that Paul says, he says, I've been trusting in my religious zeal. Look again at what he says in, in verse 5. He said, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He said, concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. Now, we kind of have a bad taste in our mouths about the Pharisees, don't we? Because, boy, when Jesus interacted with them, he stuck it to them. I mean, he was always calling them out. He called them names. Say, Jesus wouldn't call somebody names. Oh, yeah, read the stuff he said. He called them, he called them a bunch of hypocrites. He called them a brood of vipers, a bunch of snakes. He said, you guys are, are whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. I mean, he called them out. And so we say, well, you know, the Pharisees, they were all bad. But listen, the Pharisees, the, these were the strictest sect of the Jews. They truly believed that the what we call the Old Testament, their scriptures, was really the word of God. And therefore, they devoted themselves to scrupulously obeying each part of it. Now, to help them do that, I mean, there are some 600-odd commands in the Old Testament. You think that's enough, but they actually heaped extra stuff on to keep them from disobeying the commands. And so one of the things that the Jews would do is they wouldn't say the name of God. They wouldn't say Yahweh or Jehovah. They would, they would say Lord instead. Because what did God say in, in the Ten Commandments? Don't take my name in vain. They say, if we don't say his name, we can't take it in vain. Right? And so he said, don't break the Sabbath. Don't, don't do labor and work on the Sabbath. That's so what they say. Well, you, you, can, you can't carry a certain amount of weight on the Sabbath. You can't go a certain distance on the Sabbath. And all these different things. And so what the Pharisees did was, was they had all these extra traditions, all these extra rules that they saw as being just as important as the law of God itself. They were the, they were the religious and theological conservatives of the day. He says, I wanna, he says I'm not a liberal. A theological liberal. I set myself apart to keep the law. And I didn't just, I didn't just try to do it myself. I was zealous about it so much so. If you look at what he says in, in, uh, in verse 6, he says, I was so zealous for my faith, I persecuted the church before I met Jesus. Now again, who's he, who is he, who is he arguing against? The Judaizers. And it's like he's saying, you know what? No matter how zealous for your faith you are, you may be passionate about your faith, but I don't think you probably went out. You may debate people. You may contend for the faith. But I doubt that you actually traveled around and sought people out. And then when you sought them out, you didn't argue with them, but instead you bound them and drug them back to Jerusalem and voted to put them to death and then held the coats of the people who were doing it. But that's what Paul did. He believed Christianity to be a dangerous sect, and he put forth effort to snuff it out. Now, again, we need to ask ourselves, are we doing the same thing? You say, nope, 
I'm not doing any of that. I don't go around hunt people out. I don't try to snuff out anybody's religion. I don't vote for their death. I don't do any of that stuff. Listen, sometimes people today feel like they're zealous for their faith that they come to Sunday school. Sometimes people today feel like they're zealous for their faith that they come to worship three times a month. But be that as it may, some people still think that their religious zeal is going to count for something with God. They think, well, if I'll just work at Bible school, that offering plate goes by, if I'll just drop some money in, give God his due. If, if, if I'll just come on a Wednesday night, if I'll attend church regularly, if I'll witness on a street corner, then I've got, I've got something that I can really rely on when it comes to salvation because maybe Jesus didn't really save me all the way. I need to have a little backup plan, a little extra in my back pocket. But listen, Paul was far more zealous for his faith than any of us. And he couldn't count on it. And if we're less so, how do we think we could count on it? And the last thing that Paul was counting on was being righteous by keeping the law. And that way he says in, in verse 6, As to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. Now that's not to say that Paul kept the law perfectly. Only one person did that, and he was Jesus. But what he's saying is his life was not characterized by sin and vice and wickedness. By all accounts, he was living an upright life. But listen, your upright life isn't upright enough because it's not perfect. And again, are, are you doing what Paul was doing and counting on, on living a good enough life? I, I've talked to people, and, and I'm sure you probably have too, who have said, well, I just hope my good outweighs my bad. You ever heard somebody say something like that? You know, I, I just, I just, I'm just trying to do my best, and, and when I stand before God, I just hope then the scales, my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. That's a foolish thing to be banking your eternity on. Your good works will not get you saved. They will not keep you saved. They don't add to your salvation. What's Paul's conclusion to this whole matter? Look at verse 7. He says, I was doing all this stuff. I was counting on all my heritage and and my religious zeal, and I was trying to live right, trying to keep the law in verse 7, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. All these things that were gained that were an asset are a loss to him. In other words, he'd been trusting the same works of the flesh that many trust in today. They look different. We can't trace our lineage back to a, a certain tribe in the Holy Land, but the desire behind them is the same. It's to add something to the cross. Our lineage, our race, our heritage, our nationality, our zeal, our religious service, our acts of devotion, our giving, our attendance in church, our, our upright life, all this, all this stuff many of us see as being a gain. We see it as an asset, as adding to salvation, but Paul says absolutely not. And notice that he doesn't say those things are a neutral thing in verse 7. He says they were... They were negatives. They were a loss to him. He doesn't even break even with them. In fact, those things are a hindrance because if he would have trusted in them for salvation, where would he end up? Hell. So these things that he, he thought were a gain, he was, he was working. Boy, he was working hard. But that would have led to his eternal condemnation in hell. It was a loss to him. And the same is true of you and of me. If we trust in anything apart from Christ for salvation, we're trusting in the wrong thing because only Christ alone can.
can save us. Christ alone can, can, can secure forgiveness. It's not Christ plus whatever it is you may be putting in your asset column. We all have those things that we want to add to salvation. It's Christ, period. Now, I want you to hear what I'm saying. Some of those things that he mentions are not bad. In fact, many of them are good things. Living an upright and holy life, that's a good thing. That's what God says to do. He says, be holy as I'm holy. Giving, attending church, living a blameless life, being zealous for the Lord, all good things. But good things become bad things when we start to think that they are a means of salvation. Or that they add to salvation. Or they add to the cross to secure our salvation. That's when they become a bad thing. That's when those things are a loss. Because if, 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 if that is the case, if you keep in the law, if you come to church, if, if, if you doing whatever it is adds to the cross and helps you get to heaven, when you stand before God, you've got something to boast about, don't you? Because you helped, you added to, you completed the work that God was trying to do in saving you. You're welcome, God. Well, if, if you, you couldn't have done it on your own if I hadn't just kept the law. You, you couldn't have done it on your own if I hadn't gone to church X amount of times. You, you couldn't have done it on your own if I hadn't given X amount of dollars to the church. Jonah declared in Jonah 2.9, salvation is of the Lord. It is his doing and not ours. And maybe you've been putting your trust in, in Christ plus something else to save you. If that's the case, you need to put your, your trust in Christ alone. Listen, it's not about saying a certain prayer or, 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 or saying certain words or having your body in a certain position, standing, kneeling, sitting. All that is, 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 is irrelevant. It's about trusting in him alone for salvation. And if you've never done that, you need to do it today. And as we stand together, I want you to consider this question, where is your trust.